For many listeners, Illinois may only mean Chicago and the hustle and bustle of the second city, but Illinois is a massive state with a rich and stunning diversity of heritage. It's a big job to advocate for and preserve that heritage, and Landmarks Illinois, founded in 1971, is in a race against time to help the people of Illinois save places that truly matter. Landmarks Illinois President and CEO Bonnie McDonald is today's guest, a leader in the field who is blending economic and real estate development with historic preservation in new and intriguing ways. It's time to talk preservation prairie style on this episode of PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today we are joined from Chicago, Illinois, with Bonnie McDonald, who joined Landmarks Illinois as its executive leader back in 2012. Since her arrival, Landmarks Illinois has opened its first regional office, nearly doubled its staff, initiated a preservation revolving fund and new grant programs, passed needed policies, new state legislation, all while engaging in on-the-ground advocacy, helping people save places that matter to them. Previously, she served as the executive director of the Preservation Alliance of Minnesota and the Anoka County Minnesota Historical Society, as well as working with the Preservation Action in Washington, D.C., the Preservation League of New York State, the Minnesota State Historic Preservation Office, and the Minneapolis Heritage Preservation Commission. She has a Bachelor's in Arts in Art History from the University of Minnesota and a Master's of Arts in Historic Preservation Planning from Cornell University, we are so pleased to be speaking with Bonnie McDonald today. How are you today, Bonnie? Oh, hello, Nick. Thanks for having me. When you read off all those job titles, one might think I can't hold one down. But actually, they were mostly internship positions. I was very fortunate to work with all of those great mentors. Okay, well, that, that's, that's a, that, that answers the first question. How have you had that many jobs in your only 30 years on this earth? So. Well, a little bit older than that, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I, when I talk with uh, graduate students, I often, I often give them advice that the more internships that you can take, the better, because you can build your network very quickly. And I was lucky to have all those opportunities that you listed, um, but many of them were at the same time. So I was working about four jobs while also going to school. It was a lot of work. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, and now last week, Chicago... It was like negative 50. Is it slightly warmer there today? Yeah, actually, it is uh, about 50 degrees above zero. So we had a nice 100-degree temperature swing. Um, we're very happy here. It's going to dip back down, though, into the 20s. But we're, we're all out here without coats right now. Good. Well, I'm sure everyone will have the flu within a week with that kind of temperature swing. <laughs> um, I think we've had yes. a 60-degree temperature swing in Baltimore, so nothing compared to what you've got. So... People love to know about the the background of sort of the leaders of preservation and, and, and how they got to where they are. So were where were you raised? What's your story? Were you always interested in preservation history? Did it come to you a little later in life? What's the what's the uh, the origin story here? Mm. I was raised by history lovers, as as were many preservationists, and I was really thankful that my parents had um they had a i think a passion for place 
And they took my brother and I to historic sites. Those were our vacations. We didn't have a lot of money. And so we went to um, the Minnesota Historical Society's historic sites. And it, uh, it gave me a love for the, I think, the stories that people had both past and really present and future as well. So, yes, if, you, if my accent doesn't give me away, I grew up in Minnesota. And I um, spent most of my life there until I went off to college and was very, very fortunate uh, to grow up in a place that has a a rich history, as well as one of the biggest historical societies in the the entire country. So growing up as a kid, going to historic sites, um, you know, I read all the Laurel Ingalls Wilder books and spent a, a lot of time in the library as well. So I know this this is making me sound like quite a rock star um, that I spent a lot of time in the library, but <laughs> it really did help to give me the, I think, the understanding of what I was to do later in life. And my parents also had a, um, a deep commitment to civic engagement. They um, cared deeply about justice and giving people the equal opportunity to the resources that they needed to live their, you know, live their lives. And so when you put those things together, preservation was a natural you know, I started my career actually as an art student um, and then morphed into art history and finally found the, the light bulb went off when I had my first um, architectural history and historic preservation class at the University of Minnesota. So it all came together and I found a way to use my the natural voice for um, justice and equality that I had been raised with and put that into my love of history. Well, it's a it's a beautiful and, and compelling story. So where does it lead you to? Where's the first? Now, you obviously had a lot of internships, but what's the first paid job in the field? Right. Well, my first paid job was as the intern. I was a paid intern. We all, for all those executive directors listening, listening, pay your interns. That's right. Uh, they need it. And so I started as the intern for the Preservation Alliance in Minnesota. And under the, the directorship of George Edwards, who was a, an amazing mentor to me and actually gave me a job there for two years. Um, and one of my first jobs was working on the State Historic Tax Credit Policy Initiative, um, which would continue with me for my entire career, as I have found. Um, so I started doing that in uh, 1998 when I was still in college, and it really was absolutely the the right position for me. I loved doing advocacy work. I loved working side by side with uh, local citizens, you know, working at the legislature, doing a little bit of lobbying and research, policy analysis. Um, it was fantastic. And I fell in love with preservation advocacy. And in fact, I hoped uh, one day I set it to be my goal that if I could ever do it, I would become the executive director of the Preservation Alliance of Minnesota. Um, so it was a dream country when I got that job when I was about 30 years old. And how long were you with the Alliance in Minnesota? Uh, well, I was I interned there from, from 98 to 2000 uh, before going off to Cornell University. And, you know, at the same time, I just want to say I also tried different things, which I think is very important when you're considering your preservation career. So as you heard, I mean, I worked for the Heritage Preservation Commission in Minneapolis, the State Historic Preservation Office in, in Minnesota. Um, the Preservation League of New York State, which is the statewide nonprofit, as well as our national lobbying group, Preservation Action, just to try many different things. 
because in preservation, you can end up doing preservation advocacy, consulting work. You can work for a local, a state, or the national government, or, you know, even do lobbying uh, for a full-time basis. So just want to put a plug in for trying many different things before you decide what you're going to do. But of course, my heart led me to uh, to preservation advocacy work. And um, I got my first executive director job uh, right out of uh, grad school at 26, helping a local historical society. But that was to actually gain my nonprofit experience since I had never managed one. I just worked for one and thankfully had a great experience there for about three and a half years and worked, um, then got the job at the Preservation Alliance of Minnesota from 2015. I was there from, pardon me, um, 2005 to 2012 before being recruited to Landmarks, Illinois. So tell us about Landmarks Illinois. Um, it obviously has changed, you know, in the, just in the introduction here, we heard about sort of the change in the organization since your arrival. But why don't you paint a picture for, I guess, what it was and perhaps what it is today, kind of give us the background, the history of, of the organization and where you guys are at today. Yeah, Landmarks Illinois serves as the statewide historic preservation nonprofit advocacy organization, and we serve a big state. So in land area, actually, Illinois is the 12th largest state in the nation, and so we have a very big job. Um, But at the same time, we serve uh, Chicago, which is the third largest city in the nation. At the same time, it's also serving the rest of this very large state. So it's just a very, it's a very big job. Uh, for my team and myself. Um, so there are nine of us on our staff at Landmarks Illinois, but that's not where we started. We we started in 1971 as a grassroots organization, very grassroots, all volunteer. Um, our board was made up of actually lots of lawyers who cared deeply about saving the Chicago Stock Exchange building, which was a Louis Sullivan Dankmar Adler a design from 1893 or 1892, pardon me. And the we were not successful in saving that building, but it really launched the preservation movement in a big way in Chicago. Uh, we we morphed into a statewide organization in 1979 when we realized that the rest of the state needed a, a, a coordinating voice, an umbrella organization, serving our many cities and across Illinois. And uh, and then we continued to expand. So we opened our first regional office in Springfield, which is staffed by Frank Butterfield um, in 2013. And we continue to grow to add uh, more capacity to help people save places. So give us, paint the picture of, you know, what are some of your biggest programs that you guys run now? I know you have a grant program, you have a lot of advocacy programs. Um, what, what's, the, what's the hot topics um, at Landmarks Illinois right now? Sure. I think what sets us apart and what always impressed me about Landmarks Illinois, even before coming here, was the the degree to which the organization gets deeply involved in uh, solving problems in preservation. So many of us know that you come to an advocacy issue and there may not be a use for a building or you have a recalcitrant local government and they insist that a building is structurally unsound. And for, for many, many years in our history, we have brought pro bono consultants to the table to do uh, condition assessments. So we'll bring pro bono assistance out. Our director of advocacy, Lisa DeCare, is out there uh, usually a dozen times a year looking at buildings all across the state with engineers and architects. And they'll, they'll do these free assessments, which prove the building is, ta-da, structurally sound. 
And then we, we also do adaptive reuse studies. We'll bring together dozens of professionals to find the reuse solutions. And we'll put our money behind our mouth. Uh, we actually take money from our budget. We, we raise money to give it away. So I'm very thankful to our board of directors because we dedicate some of the money from our biggest fundraiser to a grant program, our Preservation Heritage Fund grant. And we give away between forty dollars and $60,000 every year to smaller organizations that are selves in seed grants. Uh, to to help their capacity and their growth. And that program is managed by Suzanne German on our staff, our Director of Grants and Easements. So continuing on, what are some other hot topics? As I said, I was always proud of the work that Landmarks did. Many might know us from our effort to save uh, uh, Mies van der Rohe's Farnsworth House, which we came together with the National Trust to buy at auction from Christie's. And we continue uh, to have an easement on that property. Our easement program is actually one of the largest in the nation. We have about 555 of them all across the state wow. that we manage. And and that's a big job that's as well. That's a lot. And, uh, yeah, so go ahead, Nick. I was just going to say that that's a tremendous amount of easements. I mean, just for someone who's who's listening who maybe isn't familiar with easement programs, I mean, that that's that's got to be one of the tops in terms of nonprofits out there. Absolutely. And that is, it's, as I said, a big job for Suzanne, but she not only does that, but she runs our grants programs uh, at the same time. So, you know, we, we just started, we just relaunched our, our revolving fund, which we had had for a number of years, very successful fund um, that stopped in 2000. And we just relaunched that program uh, to, to invest in really in develop the developers who don't have the same capacity to access the normal capital markets. And we're excited to have the support of the 1772 Foundation to do that. And we do this all at the same time as just taking those day-to-day calls from our advocates, uh, property owners, local governments from across the state. And we, we factor in about, I think we serve about 5,000 calls um, and emails every year uh, to help with support across the state. So big job and an incredible staff that does this. So now I know you also do a lot of legislative advocacy, and obviously you've opened up a field office in Springfield to do that. I'm curious, in a state, you know, you described it, and I don't know if I ever thought of it this way, but it's the 12th largest state in terms of landmass. Um, in a state that large, I mean, we have it really easy here in Maryland, right? Like, we can get from one end of the state. If we had to drive the entire state, we could do it in three hours. I don't know why you would, but if you had to, you could do it. But um, but three hours in Illinois, and you, you're probably still within the state, depending on you know where you started. How do you how do you engage people in legislative advocacy in a state like that? Um, do you have any pointers or any tips for people in in sort of similarly um, you know situated large states? How do you get people engaged? Do they have to physically be there? What's the story there? Right, Nick. Well, you're right. It takes us three hours just to get outside of Chicago, basically right. <laughs> in traffic. So. Uh, you know, from one point to another in our state, it can take seven hours to get across the state driving. Now, our Western folks are laughing right now, or California, that's nothing to them. But it's still a daunting task when you're trying to knit together the voices of people from all points around the state. And the, the place where we really need to do that is at the state capitol. And so by opening up the field office that we had, excuse me, in Springfield, we were actually able to serve a much broader constituency on the ground. So I just want to say how important that's been 
having both uh, Lisa in our Chicago office and Frank in our Springfield office, they can better serve our, our constituency on the ground in the field. And that has built up more support as they've talked about the legislative needs that we have, be it um, improving the improving the budget circumstances for our State Historic Preservation Office, which in recent years has lost about uh, two-thirds of its staff. Um, we also have been working on state incentives. So when we're out in communities talking about the, uh, vacant properties, we can ask them to be advocates with their, their state representative and state senator about our proposed uh, now real state historic tax credit as well. So number one is just being in front of people to the extent that you can within your capacity. But I just want to say as well that we have a regional advisor network, and that has been a successful tool in leveraging local uh, local advocates who are leaders in their communities, and they can talk with people that they know in their networks as well. So leverage is important when you have small capacity, like many preservation organizations do. Use those uh, those high level voices in your you know in your network to engage people in their communities. So the Regional Advisor Network has been successful. And the final thing that I would say is we have a historic preservation caucus in Illinois. We were the first state to organize a state historic preservation caucus like we find at the federal level, at the congressional level. And that has helped us to get our issues directly in front of legislators who care about economic development, history, obviously historic preservation, culture. Uh, so they come together as a caucus and we can you know, connect them with their local voices. So it's really about having a, a network and a system to engage that network at the same time. And you mentioned a big legislative success. You kind of buried it in there, but your, your state historic tax credit. Do you want to tell us just real quick what happened there? Yes, we are celebrating this year the this, the initiation of our brand new Illinois Historic Preservation Tax Credit. We have been working on getting a statewide tax credit for nine years, and we were we were successful. Starting in 2009, we were part of an advocacy effort to start a pilot initiative um, for one city, Peoria, Illinois, actually. And it started with one building. So there was a tax credit for one specific building. Um, talk about a set-aside. And then it grew into a pilot program for just five cities, known as our River Edge, uh, River Edge Redevelopment Zone State Tax Credit. But you know that was only five cities, and the, but the pilot over five years demonstrated that this was the this was the catalytic tool that we needed to revitalize these vacant you know vacant parts of those cities. And so we successfully made the case, and through you know as you know an intense amount of lobbying. In 2018, we were finally successful in passing this legislation, albeit a, a little stripped down from what we wanted it to be, but uh, a success nonetheless. And so this is of January 1st, 2019. This credit is now available. So that's a huge legislative success, perhaps proof that uh, the, the field office really does work if you didn't have any others, which I know you do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we look to our neighbor um, in Indiana. Few people know Indiana's one of the largest, if not the largest, statewide historic preservation organizations in the country, with uh, eight or nine regional offices, but far fewer people than we have in Illinois. So we're trying to catch up to our neighbors in Indiana, and they they have shown us though the benefit of regional offices. And I think that you're absolutely right. The state tax credit is indicative of the success of 
being in the field. So now I know you guys are a pretty forward-looking organization and, and you're pretty entrepreneurial. So you're also looking and you've been brought in even by the National Trust to speak about the work that you're doing with respect to the Opportunity Zone program. So first and foremost, um, what is an Opportunity Zone and why should the preservation community care about it? Yeah, so Opportunity Zone is a brand new program, sometimes called Opportunity Zones. You might also call, um, hear them called O-Zones. And the, the opportunity zones are basically districts that were, that were you know, carved out or identified, I should say, by your governor in your state based on the tax reform bill that happened in uh, 2017, late 2017. So in 2018, the governors identified areas that were uh, basically were low, considered low income um, and were in need of additional revitalization funds to help with hopefully adaptive reuse projects, but they can also be new construction at the same time. Very briefly, this allows for donors, for um, folks that have large capital gains to invest in um, community and economic development projects. The parameters of that, they are very technical and I don't, I certainly don't want people to fall asleep in this podcast, so I'm not going to go into that, but why it can benefit the historic preservation community is that if you have a if you have a project that you've been working on located in an opportunity zone, it essentially will allow for a brand new investor pool that can come in. It, it's Where it falls short, though, is it's not for projects that have truly languished. And that's what many of our projects are that we're working. You know, we're working in preservation because, you know, oftentimes the solutions aren't apparent right away. But if you have a project that has a reuse already identified and it's just looking for that little boost, um, it makes a it makes a good project great, but it doesn't make a bad project good, if we can say it that way. Yeah, I think that that's really helpful. And and does Landmarks Illinois intend on setting up an O fund, or how in, how involved do you think you guys will be? Right. Thank. Great question. You know, in order for these. Uh, these funds through these investors to make it into a project, they have to happen through what's called a qualified opportunity fund. So the, there's the, pro, the project side and there's the funding side. And so we considered uh, starting a qualified opportunity fund and went through an evaluation rubric that we put together based on uh, could we get this money out to market in the deadline that's required by the legislation. And that, that was my um, my part of the webinar from the National Trust, which is actually available online from the National Trust, if you would like to learn more about um, opportunity funds, and you can go through this rubric if your organization is considering it. We, at this outset, decided decided to put off starting an opportunity fund right now because we don't have a project that can come to market quickly enough um, currently. However, it's, it's not a big hurdle to start one of these funds, and we may do so in the future when we have more projects that have been um, that have ramped up, if we can say. Yeah. But as you said, we try to be entrepreneurial, and I think preservationists really have opportunities to take advantage of these programs as long as you can find the skill sets that you need to understand them. You know, find lawyers, um, accountants, and bankers who can help you help you identify if this is the right fit for your organization. And why not take advantage of these to help preservation happen? So speaking of that entrepreneurial spirit, what's next for Landmarks Illinois? You know, we, I would say that what we seek to do is 
to really identify that preservation is for people. And so you might not think of this as entrepreneurial in the financial sense, but I think like Preservation Maryland and others who are what I would say are um, leaders, you know, leaders who have a, we have a long way ahead of us. Can we say that, Nick? We, we can say that. Years, <laughs> yeah, years of opportunity to change the dynamic of our field. And what we hope to do at Landmarks Illinois is really to demonstrate that the work we do is is for people and it's by people. So for a long time, preservation was about edifices. You know, we're saving something for its architectural merit. But we do so because people use these buildings and they're really the... Uh, the vessels in which we hold our memories and our culture. And so the more that we can, I think the more that we can speak to individuals and communities about how these places relate to them um, civically, culturally, even, you know, psychologically and physiologically, how it improves overall health, um, the better off we are as we move forward in being relevant as a field. So for us, we're, we're doing work in inclusion and equity because, uh, you know, Illinois is, we're very lucky. We have a diverse, uh, you know, very diverse population in our state, um, especially after the Great Migration. Uh, we have about, our population is about 13 to 15% African American. We have, of course, many Asian Americans. We have one of the biggest Chinatowns in the country, in Chicago, for example, as well as our Latinx community and more. And everybody's voice needs to be at the table in preservation to understand places that we're trying to save and to ensure that we're putting our resources where the community wants them. And so we we conducted a, a program with a wonderful consultant, uh, Mina Dickerson, to do a value statement around this, um, understanding our work in inclusion and equity. We're working with our Skyline Council, which are emerging leaders network, to make sure we have voices from people of all ages at the table as well. I think this is perhaps our most important work right now is thinking about the next 25 years of preservation and the structure of Landmarks Illinois so that we can ensure we're relevant. Yeah, something big. That's just a little thing. Yeah. <laughs> just just trying to change right. the nature and of the way that preservation works. So just little stuff going on, just, just digging around the edges out there. Around the edges, exactly. And you know, we 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 come from we come from Illinois. We come from the his, the heritage of Daniel Burnham and the saying, "Make no little plans." They they do not um, they do not boil Ben's blood. Something to that effect. They do not move people um, if we don't make big plans. So it's in our it's in our blood. Well, speaking of big plans, you're also part of another big thing, which is you're chairing the National Preservation Partners Network. And I wouldn't be doing my job as the vice chair if I didn't ask you to give us a plug for that. Yes, thank you, Mr. Vice Chair. So I was proud to and honored to be elected by the members of this network to be the chair in November of 2018. Um, the Partners Network is a new nonprofit organization that is a, actually a generative network of preservation organizations, as well as partners who may not have preservation as um, you know, as their primary motive, but they're really a friend of preservation. So we're thinking about how do we grow, how do we grow the capacity within the organized preservation movement organizations like ours, as well as moving into networks that are 
involved in preservation, housing groups, um, looking at uh, community development and open space, for example. So we have bold plans for the Partners Network, and we hope that if you're listening to this podcast, you will consider looking, looking up information about us and becoming a friend of our organization. Fantastic. And we've got a, a regional meeting coming up in Dallas, Fort Worth, and Mesquite in the spring. That would be fantastic for anyone who fits what um, you just described there um, and want to learn more and, and get to meet the people who are out there, like Bonnie and others, um, doing the real work of preservation. Can I just, I, the other plug, Nick, if I say is, sure. is I, I love this network so much. That's why I took on becoming, uh, becoming the chair. I'm so, you know, so pleased to work with my colleagues because every, every one of our colleagues are working on projects and programs like the ones you've covered on Preserve Cast in such a wonderful way. I like the projects I've talked about today. They're doing, they're doing this incredible work and uh, with usually fairly small staff, fairly small budgets, but they have big goals, big dreams, and are making a difference in their communities. And they're just great people to know. And coming together with them is rejuvenating when you hear the successes that are happening out there. So if you're there in your community and you feel sometimes feel sort of alone, it's a wonderful way to come back energized for the work of preservation. Well put. So, most difficult question before we let you go on your way and your three-hour trip through the city of Chicago. Your favorite historic site or place? The question that could get you into the most danger. That's absolutely true. I, I am unapologetic about the place uh, that, I, that I call my favorite. And I've even said it here in Illinois, which is sort of sacrilege. But I, I would say my favorite place is the Minnesota State Capitol. And it was uh, designed by Cass Gilbert, um, who was actually born in Ohio, became a Minnesota St. Paul architect, and then moved on to even greater things like the Woolworth Building in New York City. Uh, but the reason it's my favorite is it has a tremendously interesting story. I was a tour guide there, one of my many jobs, um, during during my college years, and I just saw the way that people marveled at its interior, which has over 32 different kinds of marble from all across the, the country and the world. And the, that sense of wonder not only translated from the architecture, but from the work that was done in that building. And it's really the people's house. And that always, that always made it beloved to me because it was a place that we all owned. Um, it was designed to be inspirational and beautiful. And it was also a place where people came together to ensure that civic good was done. So it's not just about the architecture, but it's about uh, what happens in the building as well. Well, I think that's a fantastic and extremely diplomatic and, dare I say, legislative answer. <laughs> uh, and uh, and we greatly appreciate it. And this has been a fantastic conversation. So good to hear about all the good work that you're doing out there. I know everyone uh, looks to you and to Landmarks Illinois as a real leader um, in the preservation movement. And, and thanks for all the good work that you're doing. Hope to talk to you again soon. Well, it, it's a, a mutual fan club, I would say, Nick. So thank you for doing this podcast, for everybody listening. And um, we're all people saving places. So thanks for your time today. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. 
This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.